Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. My name's Sarah. Thanks for listening to us today. This is our post-Halloween episode. Uh, It should be coming to you on November 1st, which is All Saints Day. So no spooks, no tricks, no treats in this episode. I mean, I think that's probably inaccurate. I think, I think likely there'll be all kinds of Halloween stuff because we're sort of an all-year-round Halloween kind of experience. <laughs> but we hope you all had a lovely holiday and that you're not feeling too sick from either... All the candy. Or all the alcohol, depending on your age. age. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Just like to let all the listeners know that Fish is doing just fine. Uh, Last week we mentioned that he had been sick and we didn't know what was up. Uh, Now he's better for reasons we also don't know. Clearly their thoughts and prayers. Yes, thank you. Much appreciated, (laughs) Scream Scene listeners. What are we watching today, Ben? Well, uh, today we're watching The Old Dark House from 1932. Ooh. Directed by James Whale. Ooh. This movie, it's, I mean, it's not as famous as, like, Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein, but critically speaking, it's sort of considered to be one of Whale's major films, and at least as good as those Frankenstein movies, if not better. It's very well regarded, uh, which makes it kind of unique that I've never seen it, and I don't think you have. No, I definitely have not. And I think... Like, we've had movies on this podcast before that neither of us have seen. But for the most part, if it's been, like, a pretty well-regarded classic movie... Especially from the 30s. Yeah, we've both seen them, usually, before we have watched them for this podcast. But in this case, like, I, I just haven't seen this one. Yeah, I have no idea what we are getting into, but given its title uh, and my love of gothic literature... I think I will enjoy it. Yeah, this is sort of James Whale's entry into the tradition of the bat or the cat and the canary, that kind of movie. Mm. And typically, because of how well-regarded this film is, that kind of movie is referred to as an old dark house movie, which, of course, is the title of this film. I guess when James Whale does it right, you, you just follow in his footsteps. Sure. After the spectacular financial success of Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. uh, James Whale was pretty much on top at Universal Studios. What year was Frankenstein? 31, like November of 31. Wow, okay. It's still just kind of amazing how quick the turnaround for movies is during this time in Hollywood's history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the studio era when these things were produced on a very much a factory assembly line and directors and writers and actors were employees of a studio working a regular job. You know, Mm. you were always doing some sort of project and they were cranking this stuff out for sure. I mean, this is our 34th episode. Mm -hmm. This is still a movie from 1932. And I think our last 10 episodes takes us back to Dracula, which was 1931. So our last 10 episodes have all been in the last year. Of production, yeah. Wow. So, Whale's immediate follow-up to Frankenstein 
was a contemporary drama that came out in around February of 1932. Jeez, he made a movie, a full movie in between Frankenstein and this movie. Yes. That is so crazy. Um, And that film was called The Impatient Maiden, and it was a romantic drama uh, about contemporary issues starring Mae Clark and Lou Ayers, with most of the crew on that film consisting of people he had worked with on Frankenstein. The Impatient Maiden didn't attract much attention at the box office, however, or from film critics. Mm. Uh, which made it Wales' first kind of disappointment as a film director after a string of successful hits. So needing to bounce back from this kind of mild disappointment, Whale looked to the horror genre again for his next project and decided to adapt the novel Benighted by English author J.B. Priestley, the psychological horror novel set in the gothic horror milieu, <laughs> The story also explored post-World War I disillusionment, so this mix of themes suited Whale and his interests very well. Mm-hmm. And I think you've got some more information about the novel and its author? Yeah. So, J.B. Priestley lived from 1894 to 1984. Okay. So he was 89 years old when he passed away. And he had a fairly conventional upbringing in Bradford, West Yorkshire, England. Mm-hmm. He started working at a wool firm called Helm and Company as a clerk when he was only 16 years old. Um, he had done his regular schooling by this point, and as he was working as a clerk, he would write articles at night for local Bradford and London papers. He actually served in World War One in France. In 1916, during the war, he was actually buried alive by trench mortar. Wow. And he would go from hospital to hospital to kind of recover from that. Two years later, he would, you know, get the stamp of approval that you're better now, back to the front lines with you. And he would experience poison gas during the last of his tour, and he was demobilized in 1919. Mm -hmm. When he came back to England, he decided to get that university education. Uh, So he went to Trinity Hall, Cambridge. And uh, by 30 years old, he was a pretty established essayist. By this point, he had gotten married, uh, had two daughters, and his wife died of cancer. Oh. uh, And then got married again. And with this second wife, he would eventually have three more children. And these relationships are all before he started writing his novels. Okay. Uh, His first novel would be Adam in Moonshine in 1927. And then... The following novel, within like the next year or less, is Benighted. So this novel comes very early in his career. Mm -hmm. Um, He goes on to become a very prolific writer, especially with novels. His first novel hit would be The Good Companions in 1929. Other big works of his are Angel Pavement in 1930 and Bright Day in 1946. And though he would write these novels throughout his entire life, he began looking at writing plays in the 30s, and his best-known work and best-known play is An Inspector Calls in 1945. Okay. 
When World War II broke out, he was in his mid-40s, and he was a regular broadcaster on BBC on the show The Postscript, uh, which would regularly draw in around 16 million listeners. Okay, so very popular. Yes, the only uh, program or segment that would have more listeners would be when Churchill would actually be on the radio. Oh, okay. Yeah. Second so. to Churchill. All right, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty significant. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> In 1942, he would be co-founder of the Socialist Commonwealth Party, and because of this relationship with this party, George Orwell would consider Priestley a little dangerous, and Priestley was put on Orwell's list for people who had, or authors who had pro-communist leanings. Oh, interesting. Priestley would also become a founding member for the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in 1958. And um, he got that university education when he was 30. Uh, and then the next piece of education that he was uh, awarded is in 1970 from the University of Bradford, his hometown. He was given the Doctor of Letters. Okay. Uh, and three years later, his city, Bradford, would actually give him the Freedom of the City Award. And even though I've already kind of mentioned his notable novels and play, some works of his that I think are kind of interesting is in 1960, he wrote this book that was looking at the history of fictional genres in Western literature, basically. So it's called Literature and the Western Man, and it looks from the 15th century to about Thomas Wolfe, which was his contemporary Mm -hmm. time. And he also became very interested in the concept of time as a a theoretical concept. Okay. So he wrote a book in 1964 called Man and Time, and he actually designed it to complement Carl Jung's book Man and His Symbols. Interesting. So Priestley is a very prolific writer. He goes across a ton of different genres, from novels to plays to literary criticism to theoretical writings in terms of the mode that he's working in. But when we come to him now, uh, in the context of Old Dark House, this is incredibly early in his career. It seems like the novel Benighted, its claim to fame is kind of this movie. Okay, sure. Rather than anything else. It's interesting that, like, it's such a, like early on in his career, and he goes on to be someone who's a lot more important than this novel or this movie, it sounds like. Yeah. He seems like the kind of person who, that you could culturally run into in a variety of different ways. Like, you might know Priestley as that guy from the radio, or you might know him as, like, that communist guy, or you might know him as, like, that weird philosophical writings guy. Like, it sounds like you could you could encounter him in a lot of different ways without being aware of the other things that he was a part of. His connection to James Whale in this manner definitely feels like a trivial pursuit kind of question. Mm-hmm. You know, this random fact, not really being significant in and of itself, but really just by the, the people that it brings together in this connection. For sure. So the novel Benighted, it's actually fairly short for a novel, and from what I've seen, it seems to fit very well into that gothic literature genre, even though it was published in 1927. Mm -hmm. So it follows Philip and Margaret Waverton and their friend Roger Pendrell. 
they are on this beautiful drive through Wales when a storm rolls in and washes out the road. So they spot a crumbling mansion nearby and they take refuge there. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a pretty familiar setup, Sarah. <laughs> this mansion is owned by the Femme family. Um, they meet the siblings who are like older adults, Horace and Rebecca Femme, and their spooky butler, Morgan. Okay. Horace and Rebecca kind of hint about um, a brother that they have uh, who is confined to a room upstairs on the second floor. This is very tropey so far. <laughs> and there's another area in the second floor that is considered restricted to these uh, unexpected guests. Mm -hmm. um, as the night and storm progresses, uh, there's two other stranded travelers that join them. <laughs> Sir William Porterhouse and his companion, Miss Gladys Duquesne. Okay. They decide to uh, play truth or dare to pass the time. And uh, it's through this uh, truth or dare, I think it's just called truth game, that Roger actually incites uh, that the psychology of these characters are kind of delved into. They start to learn secrets about the femme family and that uh, there's a possible horrific thing locked up in the second floor restricted area. Right, of course. And of course the electricity goes out amongst other very spooky instances. They all separate and explore the house as you do and end up uh, exploring these restricted areas. Right, so this sounds fairly familiar in terms of the the tropes of this uh, old dark house subgenre that we've been seeing so far. Definitely. And I'm going to be curious to see if, I mean, the reputation of this movie suggests that it's much better than The Bat Whispers or The Monster Walks, but uh, we haven't seen it before, so we'll have to see for ourselves, and hopefully that reputation doesn't let us down. Yeah. When were The Cat and the Canary, The Bat, The Circular Staircase plays? Oh, the plays were earlier than that, because The Cat and the Canary film was 1927, uh, and then the Bat film was 1926, uh, and then the Circular Staircase was like 19 in the teens, and then the the Bat play was like 1920, and the Cat and the Canary play was like 1922. Okay. So they all would have predated the novel Benighted. Yeah, and I mean, like, these plays and movies, for that matter, are happening in the States. Priestley's mm -hmm. writing in the UK, mm -hmm. in England, to be specific. So... I don't know if you would have seen this kind of stuff, but it's interesting that this novel, which is so characteristic of this genre, is published at the same time as these plays and also movies are becoming very popular in the States. Yeah, I think even if the plays weren't making it over, I mean, they might have been, um, but even if they weren't, certainly there's a good chance the films might have. Yeah, that's um, true. So, Benighted, the novel would be published in the United States uh, as well, within about a year. Uh, and it was published in the United States under the title The Old Dark House. Yeah. So that's when the title change occurred. In order to adapt the novel for film, James Whale decided to call on a collaborator who had served him well in the past. Uh, and this was writer Ben Levi, who was an English playwright who had broken into film writing by writing the dialogue for Alfred Hitchcock's film Blackmail in 1929 when it was decided to 
turn blackmail into a sound film. Mm. Levi remained connected with Hitchcock over the years, uh, but he had first collaborated with Whale when he had worked on the screenplay for Waterloo Bridge, which had been Whale's first film for Universal. Carl Emley Jr. had been so impressed with Levi's work on Waterloo Bridge that he gave him a contract to come to Hollywood from England to work as a writer for Universal. Levi's adaptation of Priestley's novel mainly distinguished itself from its source material by the addition of comedy elements, which would place the film firmly in the existing tradition of the bat or the cat and the canary with the horror-comedy mix in the spooky mansion setting that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Most of the rest of the crew for the old Dark House film were previous whale collaborators as well. Uh, the makeup for the film is done by Jack Pierce, who of course created the makeup for Frankenstein. The film's cinematographer was Arthur Edison, who had shot all three of Whale's previous films for Universal, as well as having shot the original version of The Bat. Set design was by Charles Hall, who had done work on Frankenstein, as well as Dracula and Phantom of the Opera. And the film was edited by Clarence Colster, who had edited all of Whale's Universal films up to that point. Uh, so he had kind of formed a group of people who he was comfortable working with and was working with again and again. Mm-hmm. The Old Dark House would also reunite James Whale with Boris Karloff, yeah. uh, for whom this would be the follow-up to his star-making turn in Frankenstein. In Frankenstein, he had been credited with a question mark, Yeah, but the 41-year-old actor suddenly found himself thrust into stardom after the success of that film. So this movie begins with an introductory note explaining to audiences that he was indeed the same performer behind the monster in the previous film. Okay. I guess because he's acting under heavy makeup in both movies, and you might not have stayed to the end credits of Frankenstein where his name was actually shown. Okay. uh, Because he's a question mark in the opening. In the opening, yeah. yeah. So there's this, like title card that comes up at the start of this movie saying like, hey, the guy in this movie is the guy from that other movie, just so you know. Why did they feel like that was necessary? I guess because they were trying to like promote him as their new big horror star, but having been under makeup both times and only credited with a question mark in the previous one, they wanted people to know like this is the guy. So aside from Karloff, the rest of the film's cast is a collection of very fascinating respected thespians, as unique almost as the characters they play in the film. The vast majority uh, were English actors, uh, but there were two Americans in the cast. Gloria Stewart, who's the film's female lead, was born in the sort of Los Angeles, California area, uh, and she had been acting on stage through high school, college, and then gone into community theater. She was spotted by casting directors uh, doing that and signed a contract with Universal in 1932 at the age of 22 years old. The Old Dark House was therefore her breakout role, after which she became a major star for Universal, kind of a minor it girl of the early 1930s. During the shoot of The Old Dark House, uh, Stewart made friends with Melvin Douglas, who was the other American in the cast, Uh, simply because apparently the English actors would sit all together and kind of exclude the Americans. Oh. Uh, So they ended up uh, becoming big friends, and Douglas had 
just sort of started his Hollywood career as well, but he had previously had a long-standing career in Broadway as a male lead, so he was um, fairly well experienced in New York as a stage actor. And coming to L.A., he thought it was kind of ridiculous that the actors didn't have any form of union uh, and thought that the, the hours and the conditions that actors worked under were very extreme. And so in conversations with Gloria Stewart on shooting The Old Dark House, the story goes that Melvin Douglas sort of said, don't you think we should start a union? And the two of them ended up becoming some of the earliest supporters of actor unionization, uh, becoming early members of the Screen Actors Guild when it was founded the next year. Cool. After the end of World War II, Stewart would abandon acting altogether as a career, switching career to become a fine artist, uh, which we, she would do for the rest of her working life. She would retire in and around the 1970s, but modern audiences should still know her as she returned to acting to play the elder version of Rose in James Cameron's Titanic. Whoa! And in fact, uh, Cameron cast her in Titanic because he heard her commentary on the Laserdisc of the old Dark House <laughs> and thought she sounded like a really cool lady, uh, so he just cast her in Titanic. Another noteworthy member of the cast is Charles Lawton, who's making his Hollywood debut in this film. Lawton was born in 1899 in England, served in World War I, and began studying acting at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in 1925, where he was taught by an actor named Claude Rains, who was Whoa. 10 years his senior. Wow! Lawton began appearing on stage in London West End Plays in 1926, falling in love with his castmate Elsa Lancaster in 1927, and marrying her in 1928. He began appearing in small film roles in the late 20s, uh, in films designed as vehicles for his wife. Uh, so she sort of became the famous British actress, and he got parts because she was in these movies. In 1931, Lawton made his Broadway stage debut, and that led immediately to Hollywood film offers. The Old Dark House would be his first Hollywood film, but it would result in a critically acclaimed career as an actor in Hollywood, particularly in costume dramas, uh, Shakespearean-style <laughs> roles. But despite that, this isn't the last or most notable horror role we'll be seeing him in either. Uh, cool. He has a, a long-standing career ahead of him. We'll be seeing him as Dr. Moreau and uh, many other roles to come. And, of course, his wife, Elsa Lanchester, will be seeing her uh, when we get to Bride of Frankenstein. Right. Other notable figures in the cast include Canadian actor and veteran of both world wars, Raymond Massey, who would become known for his Abraham Lincoln <laughs> impression. Uh, he played Lincoln in several different films, about Lincoln in different points in Lincoln's life. <laughs> Lillian Bond, uh, a young British actress making one of her earliest appearances on film. Ava Moore, an experienced English stage performer who had been acting since 1887. Brember Wills, another veteran of the English theater who came all the way over to Hollywood on Wales Invitation specifically for this movie. Ernest Thysiger, uh, another British stage actor, as well as an open homosexual who had been friends with James Whale since 1919, 
And finally, Elsbeth Dudgeon, an actress playing a male role in the film because Whale couldn't find a male actor who looked old enough for the part. <laughs> now, in order to keep the cross-dressing a secret, Elsbeth is actually credited in the film as John Dudgeon. Okay. Yeah. The Old Dark House was released on October 20th, 1932, and it received largely negative reviews from West Coast oh, no. critics, while East Coast critics were almost entirely positive. Could that be because of something to do with, like, Broadway and stuff in New York, or, like... I, yeah, I don't really know. That's a, It's such a weird thing. But, yeah, like, New York papers loved it. L.A. papers hated it. Box office for the film was good at first, but dropped off significantly week after week from negative word of mouth. Oh, no. The film, however, did much better in the U.K., where it was a box office and critical hit, perhaps due to its English story, English setting, and largely English cast. Yeah, I wonder if Priestley ever saw this, because he was obviously alive. Yeah, when for it sure. Came out. He probably did. Uh, and, like, Whale was a very well regarded English director. There's all these well regarded English actors in it. Uh, so he probably did. Now, Universal, I guess probably because this film wasn't a big success for them, uh, they let the copyright to it lapse in 1957, probably expecting not to be getting as much money out of re-releasing it as they would from some of their other library hits. Uh, and for some time after that, the film itself was considered to be a lost film. After Wales' death, his friend, Curtis Harrington, campaigned to try and rescue the film, finally locating it in the Universal Vault in 1968, and persuading the George Eastman house to restore the badly damaged negative. Since the film's rediscovery, it has gained an exceptionally positive, modern critical reappraisal, practically hailing it as a lost masterpiece. Whoa. Yeah. It's one of those films whose who's certainly its reputation has improved in time, uh, although there has been some talk that part of that may be just because it having been lost for so long sort of increased its reputation where people couldn't see it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a fair point, too. So how are we watching this, Ben? We're recording this episode and releasing it around an interesting time for this movie. The restored version of the film uh, has been available on DVD for some time. It was released by Kino Video. Hmm. The copyright has lapsed. The film is in public domain. Uh, and I've also got a upload of the Kino video version on our YouTube playlist for people to watch. That said, a new 4K restoration by the Cohen Film Collection was released on Blu-ray on October 24th. Uh, so just, like, brand spanking hot off the presses. Wow. Um, so, uh, listeners... Uh, can go out and get that Blu-ray and watch a really gorgeous 4K restoration of this film if they uh, would like to see it. Uh, it does sort of blow the socks off of the old Kino DVD, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But if you would like to watch along with us uh, on that Kino release, you can find it on our Scream Scene YouTube playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Until then, you will hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching Old Dark House. <laughs> See you on the other side, everybody.
Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Old Dark House from 1932, directed by James Whale. Legitimately spooky. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one, Sarah. I, yeah. I am, I'm glad that, it, that I liked it, because sometimes when movies have very high reputations, you can go into them expecting too much, and then maybe it doesn't live up to that, and now you're cranky at everyone, so I was really <laughs> glad... Uh, that this movie really lived up to its reputation. It was really good. Yeah, I was a little worried that, like, because it... The title of this film goes on to characterize this genre or trope mm -hmm. in horror movies, and that trope often gets made fun of. I was worried that this movie would be a bit more spooky, mm -hmm. but it, it, in fact, is spooky. I was impressed because... So much of the writing I've read on this film describes it as horror comedy, uh, similar to Cat in the Canary or um, those other films. Uh, and I, I think, you know, there is a lot of comic elements in this movie, but the way that they're interwoven with the horror is very, very different and, and mm. comes from a, a totally different style and place and is more about having witty, well-written, sardonic, sarcastic dialogue in a horror movie rather than having a bunch of slapstick characters doing pratfalls in a horror movie. Yeah. Yes, there's some, like, comedic bits, and there were a few parts that I'd be chuckling at, but I would... I, I would call this more horror than comedy. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think it's just the fact that it has a lot of funny lines to... I was about to say to take the edge off, but in some cases they also, like, sharpen the edge, because the sense of humor of this film is very black. And not just because it's a black and white film. Right, right. <laughs> so as far as the plot summary goes, it seems to be fairly close to the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll still go over the plot summary, of course. So Philip and Margaret Waverton are traveling with their friend Roger Pendrill through a storm and they become stranded at this old dark house. As you do. <laughs> This old dark house uh, has the residence of... <laughs> Something in the way you said this old dark house made me think of, like, it's a home improvement show with Bob Vila, <laughs> like... Anyways, the residents of this house uh, are Horace and Rebecca Femme, who are older siblings, and their butler Morgan, played by Boris Karloff. Morgan... Their butler greets them in this, like, really awesome shot of opening the door, and uh, it's very clear that these are all very, very weird people. Morgan is mute, Rebecca is nearly deaf, and actually it's the fact that she's nearly deaf that a lot of the comedy in the beginning kind of comes from. And Horace is a bit of a smart aleck, uh, but he's definitely a coward. In the process of welcoming in Philip, Margaret, and Pendrel, as he prefers to be called rather than Roger, Margaret asks if she can change out of wet clothes, and so Rebecca takes Margaret into Rebecca's room, so she has a private place, and then Rebecca gets a little creepy. Rebecca is clearly very religious, and she starts rambling, as I, I guess old people do, um, rambling to Margaret about uh, the things that went on in the house when she was younger, um, about the sins of the father, about her sister Rachel who died when she was 20, these wild and sinful parties that would happen in the house. And um, she's very 
gross to Margaret by transitioning about talking about these wild and sinful parties and saying that Margaret is sinful as well for being young and pale and beautiful. Mm-hmm. The gist of it is that her sister Rachel was a lustful, sinful woman, and so's Margaret, I guess, as far as Rebecca's concerned. Yeah, and so Margaret is shaken and upset, uh, obviously, and we see this exchange haunt her throughout the rest of the film in really interesting ways through cinematography and shadows and, and things like that. And this particular exchange also has a really unique thing with uh, Rebecca's face being reflected in like these mirrors and odd angles and stuff, and it really reflects her kind of uh, own perspective. So during dinner, we learn how Horace mocks her faith, and... Uh, we also see how Morgan, the butler, has a bit of a focus on Margaret. Yeah, there's a lot of uncomfortable leering. Yeah. Dinner is interrupted when Sir William Porterhouse and his companion Gladys Duquesne, uh, also known as Gladys Perkins, show up. They have dinner, and uh, later, we kind of have like an ellipsis to later when they're sitting around the fire, they start talking about their psychology, not so like abruptly as I, I might make it sound. It The conversation flows quite naturally, um, but this is the segment of the film where we get this kind of analysis of some of, their, of, some of the guests' psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, so we learn how uh, Roger Pendrel doesn't really take anything seriously because he survived World War I, and he's kind of like, life's a gag. Just enjoy it as you can. Um, But he's kind of cynical about it as well. Yeah, he's very disillusioned. Porterhouse only takes money seriously after the death of his first wife. They imply that his first wife uh, committed suicide because Mm -hmm. of their lower class and people mocking them as Porterhouse was trying to get into uh, the business of making money. And um, we also learn a bit about Gladys Perkins. This is where we learn that her last name is actually Perkins and not Duquesne. And how, you know, despite going by this different last name, she's very upfront about being a chorus girl. um, And she seems pretty proud of who she is. Rebecca interrupts everything by shouting about how Morgan, the butler, has gotten into the drink and he becomes a bit of a rampaging drunk. That kind of interrupts the mood there. Pendrel and Gladys decide to go out to the stables where the car is parked to get some whiskey to kind of take the edge off uh, with being in this house. And the lights go out, so Horace takes Philip upstairs to get a lamp. And this is where we learn how Horace is so much of a coward. Yeah, he won't even go up all the stairs with him. Yeah. Um, As they're going up these stairs, uh, Philip passes a closed door where you can hear the wind howling from behind and he comments later how he thought he heard like whispering coming from the other side of it but he leaves the door and continues up and he gets to a room at the very top uh where the lamp is but the this door at the very top is locked and bolted to stop something from coming out Rebecca gets Porterhouse uh, away from the living room um, by getting him to come close the window that's, like, stuck in her bedroom. So Margaret is left all alone in this living room. Morgan comes in and uh, goes to attack her. She runs up and Philip, coming down with the lamp, knocks Morgan out after a bit of a, a scuffle. As Morgan is laying on the stairs unconscious, Philip takes Margaret upstairs to where he saw that first door with the wind howling behind it. 
Um, they open it and then they meet the patriarch of the family, Sir Roderick Femme, uh, who is quite old. He's over 100 years old and uh, he's infirm. He's not really able to leave his bed. And he starts to tell them about Saul. Saul is his eldest son, so Horace and Rebecca's eldest brother. And Saul is who is locked up in the tallest room in the highest tower, as it were, uh, because he tried to set fire to the house once. Roderick also explains how there's a bit of a madness in the house and it seems to infect everyone who lives here. So in the midst of learning how Morgan, if he becomes out of control, there's a chance he might let Saul out, Margaret and Philip leave Sir Roderick. They actually lock him in, which I don't really understand. They see that Morgan is no longer unconscious on the floor. He's actually gone. So they run downstairs where everyone else reconvenes. Um, throughout all of this, Pendril and Gladys have been having a bit of a love story, a love subplot in the stables um, about how they really like each other, and um, uh, Pendril kind of mentions to Porterhouse separately that he plans on asking Gladys to marry him in the cold light of the morning, as it were. But so they all reconvene uh, in the main living space, um, just as Morgan lets Saul out. Everyone's kind of brought up to speed about what the heck is going on, who the Saul guy is. It takes Philip, Pendrel, and Porterhouse to attack Morgan and try to get him into the kitchen as per Rebecca's commands. But Pendrel runs back and puts Margaret and Gladys in a little cupboard to protect them and then has this really engaging exchange with Saul, where Saul says that, you know, they only locked me up because I saw that they killed Rachel when she was 20, and then is very clearly actually insane. Talks about how he's going to murder Pendrel and all these things, and talks about um, the secrets of fire and mm. things like that. So a fight breaks up between Pendrel and Saul, and as they fight, Saul actually starts to set fire to the house, and they're up on the upper balcony, and uh, in the midst of trying to put out this fire and in the fight, um, both Saul and Pendrel fall from the banister uh, down about 10 feet. Margaret and Gladys are banging on the door to be let out of the cupboard, and Morgan lets them out, and uh, he actually attacks Gladys to get at Margaret. And as soon as Margaret mentions Saul is hurt, Morgan stops, he goes and picks up Saul and takes him upstairs in a very solemn kind of way. Philip and Porterhouse come back and it is implied how Pendrel is dead from the fall. They try to restrain Gladys from going over to see him, um, but she breaks free and goes over and then cries in joy that, no, he actually is alive. And then we have a bit of an ellipses to the morning when Horace comes out of his room and says, Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I think you can go for an ambulance now. And Pendrel asks Gladys to marry him. The end. <laughs> so from what I understand, Pendrel living is the only big change from the book. Yes. Yeah. In the novel, he dies. Mm -hmm. Which, like, even when I watched the movie, that felt like that should have been the ending. But we're sort of still in an era of Hollywood filmmaking where romantic happy endings are expected. Like, you only get the tragic ending if the character really, like, deserved it. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't even let James Whale kill off Frankenstein. Uh, and, you know, he was all full of hubris and shit. Yeah, it's interesting that with like the two films of whales that we've seen, both being adaptations, he's kind of shied away from that tragic ending. Well, and I don't think it's been his decision. I think it's mm. been mandated by studios and test audiences. 
I feel like this is a movie with a lot to unravel um, and a lot to parse out. And one of the things I thought was sort of interesting about it was that it's it's based on a novel and it feels like a play. Mm -hmm. And it has that sort of feeling of characters who all have a lot more going on than what's just in the story. But the movie doesn't dump a whole ton of exposition on you. It sort of leaves a lot to things that are implied and having to kind of connect the dots yourself uh, and kind of figure out for yourself what really the backstory of the femmes are because we hear a few different stories about this really broken family um, and it's, you know, you have to kind of decide for yourself who's telling how much of the truth at what point. Because there are points where we get contradictory information, Mm -hmm. right? Like, from Rebecca, we hear how her sister Rachel died from, like, a horse accident when she was 20. Yet, Roderick says that he's had two children die. Mentions one was Rachel. Mm -hmm. And then, doesn't really mention the other, but then, like, goes on to talk about Saul. So it's as if he considers Saul dead, even when he's not. Yeah, and Saul claims that Rebecca and Horace murdered Rachel and then locked Saul up so that he wouldn't tell anyone. Yeah. But that's also part of a point when Saul's trying to feign that he isn't a murderous madman, and then it turns out that, of course, he is. So how seriously can we take what he said earlier? There's also the fact that Horace just very offhandedly mentions that he's wanted by the police, as if that's just a thing that you tell people in casual conversation. And the reason that they keep Morgan around is because of Saul. Yet if Morgan gets drunk, he'll let Saul out. So there's an implied Morgan is Saul's son. Really? You think that was the implication? That's what I thought. Oh, wow. I didn't get that at all. I mean... What did you think? The implication I got was because, like, Morgan's this big, brutish, hulking man who's mute. So it's like, what use is he really as a butler? But I guess the idea, it seemed to me, was that, you know, if Saul gets loose, Morgan can put him back. And yeah, Morgan's the one who's the most upset about Saul being dead at the end of the movie because, you know, Horace, basically, it's as if it never happened. And Rebecca's just kind of like mildly inconvenienced by the whole experience but i didn't get i didn't get morgan being saul's son i guess there wasn't enough there wasn't maybe enough dots there for me to connect that but there's certainly a connection between them that's for sure and morgan only listens to rebecca yes he won't take orders from horace but he'll take orders from rebecca for sure so the wheels in my head are turning in what exactly went on in this house. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's very interesting about this movie is you kind of have to... I don't know if maybe in the novel things are more spelled out, but in the movie version, at least, you really have to decide for yourself what you think the answers to the various questions of the Femme family are. Yeah. I think the other thing that's very clear that from the novel is... Like, I mentioned in the beginning how the novel goes into the psychology of the characters. Mm. Um, But it's very much a British kind of novel and also a very British kind of film. Because the comedy feels like, from the bickering couples, but also, like, the behavior of Horace and the, like, pomp and circumstance with, like oh, how do you do? How do you do? Kind of repeatedly. But then also, you know, we have upper class 
kind of people with Philip and Margaret faced with like lower, I, I don't know, yeah, if you'd the, say lower class. No, there's class dynamics certainly going yeah. on here. Absolutely. There's, there's a lot of class commentary. I only really see that kind of stuff about class in British media rather yeah. than American. Because American media likes to pretend that there is no class distinctions in America. Yeah. So I think what's incredible here is how immensely better this is compared to a lot of its progenitors. Like, Mm -hmm. The Cat and the Canary comes close, but that's mostly on strength of its visuals. And I think what we're starting to pick apart here is the thing that I feel most strongly about this movie, which is how character-driven it is. Mm. Uh, You're bringing up the comedy, for example, and I think the comedy is character-driven. It doesn't result from slapstick, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't result from shtick, either. It's coming from witty, well-written dialogue. Mm -hmm. And the horror is character-driven, too, because it's coming from the secrets that the femmes keep and their mysterious, hostile nature and the lengths they'll go to protect those secrets. I completely agree. Um, I think what's also interesting is how much this film is kind of calling back to these earlier films through these, uh, I guess, visual markers. So, like, there's this shot in The Cat and the Canary where we're moving through this hallway with these billowing curtains. Mm-hmm. And we get a similar hallway like that in this movie. Yes. Um, the way that the staircase to the upper floors is, like, right in the center of the room in this film reminded me of the Bat Whispers in mm-hmm. sort of ways. And there were even parts where, like, especially with, like, the upper balcony and, like, a little bit of what Karloff was doing reminded me of the monster with mm-hmm. Lon Chaney Sr. Mm-hmm. I think what's unique is how, so far to this point, that subgenre has been very American. Mm-hmm. And this film, as you said, is so English. And that really, I think speaks to the fact that, like, in those earlier movies, like, the characters were largely just kind of one note and very forgettable. For once, for me, all the myriad characters in one of these movies, they all feel like unique, well-conceived individuals. Like, even the Wavertons, who are kind of our requisite young married couple trope, (laughs) um, they feel a little more real, just thanks to these moments of characterization that are allowed to them. They interact in a way that makes them feel like a married couple, just beyond calling each other darling every six seconds, you know? Yeah, the way that they're bickering in this car, yet later uh, when Margaret is looking for support without actually asking for it to, like, distance herself from Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Philip is, like, right there. They kind of wink at each other across the room yeah. for support. Yeah. Um, I really... I actually really appreciated stuff like that. Yeah, uh, I, I, exactly. This film also does something really cool in that it manages to sort of combine the slow-build atmospherics with the old house and the storm combining that with a lot of action of running up and down stairs, slamming doors, hulking monsters. But the action doesn't feel tiresome the way that it has sometimes in movies like The Bat. And it doesn't feel... It doesn't feel like the movie has two parts, the slow parts and the fast parts, right? It feels like it's of one piece and connected. And I think that was something that like even Roland West had difficulty with 
mm-hmm. making his movies feel like a whole piece, and this movie certainly does. One thing that I noted about the film, like my first note, mm-hmm. is that this seems like a really great example of continuity editing. Okay. Because I felt like there wasn't this like slow part, fast part. It continues throughout the whole thing. And yeah, we have a couple of ellipses, but like it feels like a very natural paced story. And with continuity editing, it's supposed to feel like it's all unfolding in real time. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's also why it feels a bit of like a stage play to you. Yeah, it... it- it, what it certainly has is the, you know, the the Aristotelian, you know, <laughs> kind of um, standards of drama, right? Like it yeah. has, you know, un- the, the three unities, right? It has unity of place and time and characters. Yeah. So you're not bouncing around. And I know that like Cat and the Canary and the Bat and, and, and those films had that as well. They didn't manage to make themselves as engaging, mm-hmm. I think, as this film did. Like... What this movie manages to do is add a lot of really appreciated things to the universal horror formula, uh, which for me are exciting action and genuine character development. And it manages to do this without losing the uh, sort of chiaroscuro atmospherics that defined those universal horror movies to begin with. It actually bolsters them. Yeah, for sure. Like, we still have the character, what I would call the characteristic whale direction. And the reason I call it that is because, like, I remember in the Frankenstein episode, I talked about how we had these cuts where we'd be seeing two people talking, and then we would cut closer and closer to Victor Frankenstein um, as he's talking about his motivations or his intentions. And it was almost a way to, like, humanize his motivations and aspirations. Mm-hmm. We have similar cutting during conversations here focusing on different people here it feels like it's a totally different intention because um rather than humanizing the femmes it gives a feeling of their madness or like their uh unstable point of view yeah because what they're saying is constantly being cut up by these different cuts i mean it's certainly most extreme in the scene between Rebecca and Rachel, because Rebecca's getting reflected in these warped, smashed mirrors, and we keep cutting between multiple different reflections as she's talking, and it kind of warps her from this, like, comedic old lady to this kind of, like, terrifying, gnomish old crone. Yeah. The one thing with this film that I was a little disappointed about is um, what... Boris Karloff was able to do. So his acting is great. Uh, I think the makeup is great. But I really wish he got to do more than just yet another kind of Frankenstein shtick. Yeah, like, he has top billing in this movie, but he is basically just doing the Frankenstein monster again. Yeah. Right? There's this preface that explains that he is indeed the same actor as the monster. Uh, And that seems kind of comical, given that despite the different makeup... He's doing basically the same stuff. He's shuffling around, he's being hulking and brutish, he's growling mutely and waving his arms around stiffly. Yeah. Um, except, like, the monster was allowed to be multidimensional and sympathetic, while Morgan is perhaps the most thinly drawn character in this story, other than the moment where he shows his clear distress at the death of Saul, which gives a lot of intrigue, 
He's largely there otherwise simply to menace the Wavertons. Yeah. Um, he's conveniently a dangerous alcoholic uh, to kind of set off a bunch of different plot points. We've had a lot of movies where part, at least, of the horror is like, this monster's coming for this girl, right? Damsel in Distress style horror. Yeah. And I think, like, it's it's pretty implicit, like, what that fear is about, because it's not like... If Dracula makes off with your lady, it's not like you're afraid he's going to take her to a nice evening at the Devonian Gardens. Like, there's a specific fear there. But maybe it's because Morgan's, like, a man and not a monster. Uh, I mean, he's got monstrous attributes, but he is supposed to just be a human. Yeah, there's a lot more explicit, outright lust and kind of violent overtones in his attacking of Margaret, that even though the, like, implication behind monsters like Dracula was of sexual assault, it just feels a lot more like a clear and present danger with Morgan, um, that, like, if he can get his hands on Margaret, uh, there'll be, like, an immediate rape happening. And it's, it's, maybe it's also because it's combined with Rebecca's, Mm -hmm. like, slut-shaming, essentially, of Margaret that there's a lot more emphasis placed on those elements so that Morgan's motivations are more clear. Even though, I mean, again, like you said, nothing... He never succeeds at doing anything, so there isn't any explicit, you know, rape in the movie or something. It just feels like the threat of it is much clearer than it has been in previous films. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with um, this implicit threat being made a bit more clear with Rebecca and everything that she brings to the film. Especially the exchange that Rebecca has with Margaret Mm -hmm. and how shaken Margaret is after that. Yes. Um, And and the kudos to the actress playing Margaret because she brings this in throughout the rest of her performance, just being freaked out by this and um, being like, and performing that uh, hyper-awareness of people looking at you. Yeah, for sure. Before seeing this movie, I never really understood why the butler of the Adams family had the mannerisms of Boris Karloff as the monster, uh, but now I do. I yeah. get it now. <laughs> this movie seems alive in a way that some of the earlier films we've been watching have not. Like, we've sort of talked sometimes about movies like Vampire or White Zombie having nightmare or dreamlike qualities, but this movie seems very awake. It, it's very present. And I don't know if that's an entirely the result of superior writing or a superior cast, but like regardless, the people in this story are engaging to watch on the screen. I think it's because, to kind of hark back to something you said earlier about like these people feel like there's other things going on in their lives outside of what we see in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a little bit of an insight with some of their psychologies. Mm-hmm. So because the film is taking pains to show us that, to show us small little um, exchanges between characters, it doesn't feel like these people are just existing because they happen to be in this dream, right? In dreams, people are just happen to be there, and then they happen to fade away, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. Mm-hmm. This feels like 
something has happened to bring them here, whether it's the storm or some kind of curse or something like that. Yeah, these people feel like they have lives outside the story we're seeing on the screen in this movie. Yeah. Um, you know, even the femmes, but also their visitors, all have histories that reach back before this story. Yeah. Um, I mean, these characters aren't up to the depths of character from what you'd expect from, like, a straight drama or a novel, but compared to other horror films we've seen so far, they are very richly drawn. The movie shows its priorities uh, about how much depth to give its characters when things like the entirety of Pendrel's speech explaining his war history, which explains his hurt and his needs so thoroughly and is moving enough to make Gladys fall in love with him, that whole speech happens off screen. Yeah. Like, we get the implication that he is someone who is, you know, hurt by the war, and him and Gladys go off together and spend some time alone together, but we come back to them after a cut as he's finishing this big speech explaining himself, and then Gladys is like, well, I'm in love with you now. If this was a novel uh, or a straight drama about the post-war condition, we would have surely heard that story. But this is a horror movie, and we've got scares to get to, and the ruined World War I soldier is an archetype familiar enough that we can just sort of trust the audience to figure it out. The part that we do cut back to is when he's... Yeah, he finishes telling about this, uh, his life story, and Gladys asks, well, what about the girl? And he says, well, she went off and got married, but it's fine, He's a, she married a fine fellow. Mm-hmm. And part of me wonders if that's Margaret, because otherwise I don't know why these three are traveling together, or oh, what kind of friendship they yeah, have. Yeah, that's a good point, because Margaret and Philip and Pendrel are all friends at the start of the movie. But we don't get anything that's like, yeah, the Pendrel and Philip were friends during the war. Yeah, no, They went no... to college together. Like, there's nothing. So yeah. I wonder if that's a thing. That's, that's a great theory. I, I really like that. Mm-hmm. The cast of this movie is, I think, fantastic across the board. Definitely. They've got a really good set of actors, even in the most thankless of roles. Um, Raymond Massey manages to make Philip Waverton likable, uh, despite getting nothing particularly heroic to do. He's basically that Jonathan Harker style of character. And at the start of the movie... He's kind of like a grouch, just sniping at his <laughs> wife. Like, I would not have expected to have liked that character as much as I did by the end of the movie, based on how the movie began. Yes, I completely agree that, like, no one here feels like the weak link. Mm-hmm. You know, Melvin Douglas, who plays Pendrel, um, he likewise comes off as, like, quite an ass yeah. at the start of the movie. He's got a... We hadn't even reached the house, and I was like, guys, shut the fuck up. Yeah, uh, he's got like a sarcastic quip for every situation. But again, by the end of the story, he's the undisputed romantic hero. Yeah. Right? Like, we've talked about how it would have been totally appropriate for him to get a tragic death if it wasn't for that need for the happy ending. And, and he's likable. We like him by the end of the movie. Sir William Porterhouse, who is Charles Lawton's character, is something of a blowhard at first, I think. Yeah. Um, when they come in and they're just like, he just like charges in and he won't stop talking. I just remember thinking like, read the room, buddy. Like, what, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. What are you doing? 
But again, by the end, you kind of like him. Yeah, like he's so he's got this um this accent that I think is meant to really speak to the character's class because as mm-hmm. much as accents in England are regional based, they're very much associated with class. Yeah. Um that accent I guess is fairly close to Charles Lawton's natural accent, but he typically didn't use that accent when acting. He's the closest the film has to like a purely comic relief character, I think. Yeah. Um but even he gets like good dramatic exploration and he's likable by the end of the story. He gets to have that speech explaining his his backstory and stuff. The movie does a really good job of making all of these people likable and sympathetic. I think the the kindness and the sympathy that the Waverton show to Sir Roderick even though like he's clearly off his rocker uh that endears them to the audience mm-hmm. uh and shows that they're good people. You know, I was just impressed that the film takes the effort to have the characters behave in such a way that we really feel for them, we're sympathetic for them, and we like them for reasons more than just they're the protagonists. Yeah. And what's interesting is like you've mentioned how the strangers to the house when we first meet each of them, we kind of bristle at them and then yeah. by the end we like them. Yes. Yet with the inhabitants of the house, we kind of like them. And then we hate them by the end. Yeah, like Horace seems like a nice, polite old man. Rebecca seems like she has kind of that comedic. What? Yeah. No beds. Yeah. No beds. <laughs> yeah, she's just sort of deaf and harmless, you know. And yeah, by the end of the movie, like we know that they're all terrible. Yeah. I think there's something about going through this harrowing experience with this group of people that makes us feel really connected to them by the end of it. We are the survivors just as much as they are. Yeah, for sure. I would definitely go with that. I I I might have over identified with Margaret's story here, and so I definitely agree that like by the end we do feel like we have survived this experience like they have. Yeah, and I think this is a trick that you see a lot in later horror movies where you know, you, regardless of what you thought of the characters at the beginning of the story, you really identify with them by the end because you share the horrific experience with them. Um, like a good example... I was thinking the Texas Chainsaw Chainsaw Massacre! Massacre. That's exactly what I was thinking watching this movie. (laughs) Yeah, because it's the same thing of, like, being in, like, this old dark house (laughs) and, like, your cars broke down... And, like, you're with this weird family, and it's also got the, like, super, 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 super old guy, right? And then you're just... Weird shit happened with this family. Yeah, that you don't really know about. You don't really want to know about. Yeah, and then you just barely escape at the end, right? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's totally what I was thinking, too. This film balances a really good variety of scares. Mm Mm-hmm. It's got the sort of slow-build atmospheric stuff. It's got the creepy dialogue, uh, but it's also got, like, really violent attacks and perilous action. There's always something ready to unsettle the viewer in this movie. And even, like, the segment where Saul and Pendrel 
have like that entire like exchange of Saul pretending to be sane and then like turning and like that whole thing was just like making me climb up the wall. I was just so freaked out. Yeah, there's such good acting in that scene as Pendrel sort of slowly coming to the realization of how dangerous Saul is as Saul becomes more and more dangerous, but Pendrel trying to keep the situation diffused by, like, just going along with what Saul's saying and trying to insist that he's his friend and stuff. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a really top-notch scene. Um, that being said, even with, you know, insane Saul and brutish Morgan and creepy Horace and off-putting Roderick, I have to say I personally found Rebecca and her fanaticism to be the most terrifying force in the film. Yeah. Um, with her judgmental shaming and her selfish actions. Um, I just feel like whatever's wrong with this family, she's somehow at the center of it. Just, that's the feeling I get. For a supposed Christian, Rebecca's religion seems only to give her justification in hurting those around her, and she doesn't have any recognizably Christian virtues like charity. Uh, she's the most against sheltering the travelers from the storm. Yeah. I think your identification of her as the being at the center of whatever the heck happened with this family is a really good point because Saul starts quoting Bible verses at Pendrill mm -hmm. talking about whatever role Saul in the Bible had. Yeah, in the soul, story of Saul and David. Yeah. I think that ties her with Saul in a way that really shows how central Saul is. Mm -hmm. Not to take away from Rebecca, because I'm totally with you about Rebecca being the creepiest. And, like, the film doesn't even shy away from that, which is interesting because given the time that this movie is being made and the fact that, like, during the horrific climax of this movie, the two or two other main women are locked away to mm -hmm. be protected... Yet one of the main threats is this old woman. Mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't really expect that, but the movie does not shy away from it, and she's actually the first to be explicitly a threat with her exchange with Margaret. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, maybe there's something unique to me, because I also really get freaked out by the old vampire and vampire, so maybe there's just something about me and, like, old women, but the thing that I found really unique about Rebecca and her interactions with Horace is that they overall give this movie a very negative... It makes this movie kind of a condemnation of religious fundamentalism, mm -hmm. which is very surprising for the time period that this movie came out in. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas Frankenstein had potentially blasphemous tones by having such a sympathetic portrayal of the lead character's god complex um ultimately that movie punished him for his hubris but old dark house meanwhile i feel is much more damning of religion with its portrayal of the very nasty and hypocritical rebecca i mean she gives this huge big speech to margaret about uh, about the sin of being obsessed with your looks yeah. right and then as she leaves margaret in that room she stops by a mirror and fixes her hair, and then leaves the room. Yeah. Although, even though Rebecca is portrayed so negatively, it is worth noting that Horace, who is an atheist and likes to rib 
Rebecca and kind of needle her about her religion, he's depicted as basically spineless, cowardly, and equally murderous. Yeah. So it's not like it's showing atheism in a very good light as well, but it is, like, this is a very cynical movie, I think. I definitely agree with you here. Um, I do think that there's something about, like, the themes in Christian religion about sin mm-hmm. is what is central to the theme, or is what is central to the fear of this movie. So I think talking about the fears that are central in this movie, I have a question for you, Sarah. Sure. Do you think Sir Roderick's name is an Usher reference? I think it is. So, like the Poe story, Fall of the House of Usher, and other classics of Gothic literature, this story revolves around old family secrets, and the danger that they present to the family, and then the danger that the family poses to outsiders to ensure that their secrets stay kept. Mm -hmm. I think, to me, this is what I interpret the central fear in this movie about, is basically the dark, hidden secrets of a family. And I think one of the reasons this particular fear is so effective is that it's very widely relatable. Uh, To some degree, we all have dark secrets in our families, and they might exist on a spectrum from mild to murderous. The terror of learning the secrets of the femmes reflects our own preference not to look too deeply at the hidden truths in our own families. Yeah, I was thinking of something kind of along those lines, definitely very influenced by the fall of the House of Usher. But in this film, Roderick says something about madness being in the house and how it's kind of seeped into every person who lives here. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking about, you know, we, we get these hints of the sins of the family. It seems like the source of this madness of the inhabitants of this house come from trying to hide these secrets, not wanting to face them. Yet, if we look at Pendrel and Gladys, especially in the context of that segment by the fire where we get these almost confessional narratives from them, and how that still feels very thematic to the movie. It doesn't feel like we sidestep no, into yeah. something else. Because everybody's history and secrets are important. Yeah. So it feels like... It's this fear of, not so much of sin, I guess, but the fear of facing what we ourselves have done. Mm -hmm. And so the femmes have gone mad avoiding these sins, avoiding, like, dealing with it, the fallout of it, etc. Yet, Pendrel and Gladys are, for lack of a better word, pure, or, like, are two romantic leads in the movie because... They know what they've done. They've accepted what they've done. Especially in Gladys. She doesn't shy away from being a chorus girl. And so I think that's kind of where the root of the, the, the madness and also a bit of the fear of the, the movie as well. Gladys, she is at peace with who she is. The femmes obviously are not. Pendrel's sort of somewhere in the middle. When he starts the film, he's not a man at peace. He's very cynical. And he sees in Gladys someone who can maybe help him to overcome his trauma and that's what she wants to do for him as well she basically falls in love with him because she wants to fix him so there's an element about this movie that's sort of about overcoming 
the traumas of your past and that being a good, healthy thing to do, whereas locking the traumas of your past away, uh, not such a good thing, right? Yeah. Which the Femmes literally do. Yes. Gladys, again, is a great example of a character in this movie who we like despite the fact that, as you said, when she first shows up, she's kind of a little bristly. Like, she sort of seems like a um, shallow party girl when yeah. she first shows up. And instead, she she sort of is so much more. I think that the two actresses, Gloria Stewart as Margaret and Lillian Bond as Gladys, you know, it's 1932, so they do get a little bit of the short end of the stick sometimes in terms of having things to do. Like, they do spend the whole third act just locked in a closet. But I think, like, Gloria Stewart puts in a very good performance as Margaret, Mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of a thankless role, because she's primarily there to be... The damsel. Yeah, she's there to be sexy and threatened, right? There's this whole thing... And, I mean, the movie does a pretty good job of tying it into the themes and rationalizing it, where after they come in from the cold and the rain... Margaret goes and changes her clothes because they're wet. She's the only character who does this. Mm-hmm. Everybody else stays in their wet clothes. And she changes into... Like, like a, an, an evening gown. Yeah, it's a white satin evening gown that you would wear to... A ball. A, yeah, and you get the... It's, it's an interesting bit of storytelling because it tells you that Margaret and Philip were packed to go somewhere probably fairly high class. Yeah. Uh, which lets you know that they're high class even though there's not a lot else in the movie to say that but what it means is that she's basically in like a sexy outfit for the rest of the movie like a 1932 sexy outfit and it singles her out and she's singled out in the movie for those attacks uh she's the one who's kind of uh slut shamed by rebecca she's the one who's the object of sexual assault from morgan even though gladys is a chorus girl who is being paid to be William Porterhouse's companion. But she's not singled out this way because she's not dressed in a certain way. Yeah. And yet, you know, when she's not screaming, Gloria Stewart manages to imbue Margaret with a lot of really likable qualities and engaging personality so that when she is under threat, whether it's from Morgan or Rebecca, you feel with her and you empathize with her plight. And we've sort of been talking about this over the last couple of movies about a good actress being able to make you care about the damsel in distress character rather than just be tired of them. Yeah. And I think the reason why it also works in this movie is because Margaret doesn't have to be all things. Like we have three different women in here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, one of them is like a crone, but the fact that we can have multiple women doing multiple things... Yeah. Serving different ends and, like, all working, like, all of the characters are working towards the film's thematic whole. Yes. It's not like someone's just there to be sexy or someone's just there to be the call girl. Yeah, for sure. And I think the movie does a good enough job making Rebecca distasteful that I think the movie effectively makes us understand that, like, the argument that, like, Margaret deserves to be attacked because of how she's dressed or something is not fair. Yeah. Right? We we I, we don't take that to be the movie's point of view. It's not like in an 80s slasher movie where you got killed 
because you had sex and you deserved it or something. Yeah. Um, that kind of moralizing. Because Rebecca is so clearly seen to be extreme and evil, um, so we don't take her at her word. Yeah. Jillian Bond, who plays Gladys, also really acquits herself well with a part that's pretty insubstantial on paper. She falls in love with Pendrel at kind of a drop of a hat, and then she doesn't get much to do following that. But Gladys gets just enough dynamics with the other characters and just enough backstory to give Bond something interesting to hang her performance on. Yeah. And I think this is sort of, for me, a key of this movie for everyone, Mm -hmm. is just enough backstory (laughs) might be, like, the key phrase to the whole affair. We never learn everything about everyone. We learn just enough to get who they are and have them have a little more depth than the standard horror movie character. Um, From the visitors to the femmes, everyone's former lives are sort of elucidated a bit cryptically, um, but it's just enough that we understand them better and they are more fleshed out and defined because of it. Um, you know, Pendrel's got his vague World War I history. Charles Lawton gets that wonderful monologue describing Sir William's wife's suicide after being rejected, and his subsequent business motivation being to ruin the upper classes who scorned her. <laughs> um, you've got Gladys with her chorus girl companion for hire life, which is fairly lightly sketched, but it's just enough for us to understand what's going on. You know, the Wavertons, we, we, we get enough to get who they are and start putting pieces together ourselves, like you did with trying to figure out the relationship between the Wavertons and Pendrel, or trying to figure out exactly who's telling the truth at what moment of the Femme family. I think this is is really what makes these characters come alive is it's it's just enough backstory to be evocative but still leaving a bit of mystery for the audience. Definitely. Yeah, even for Saul who gets one scene, yes. really, he feels just as fleshed out as the others because of this little bit of backstory with people talking about him. Yeah, I think um Brember Wills who plays Saul, he's a very welcome bit of energy. In the third act, his performance is maybe a bit broader and more theatrical than everybody else's, but I think he gets away with it because Saul's mad. And he only gets one scene, right? Yeah. Um, That said, I think for my money, the real MVPs of the cast are Ernest Theisiger and Ava Moore as um, Horace and Rebecca Femme. Even when they're not in a scene, their evil is kind of what infests the whole house, in my opinion. I was thinking about this. This is a movie where the mentally ill witness to a murder and then subsequent victim of abuse is killed by violence, while two wanted murderers and a violent attempted rapist go free, right? Like, this movie ends with everybody just kind of saying goodbye with a smile to Horace and leaving the house, but, like, him and Rebecca and Morgan are all still in there, and they're all still terrible people. Yeah. It's kind of a bit of a sleight of hand act that the movie lets us be okay with that kind of an ending where, you know, Horace just is bidding people a polite farewell after they've been terrorized in his house all night and they get off the hook. And I don't think you'd have an ending like that in a movie in 
you know, a few more years in Hollywood, really. Because it would need to be wrapped up more? Yeah, like, under the terms of the production code, evil could not go unpunished. Oh, You yeah. couldn't have someone get away with a crime. So the only other movie that we've seen in the context of this podcast from James Will has been Frankenstein, mm-hmm. uh, where, again, he was adapting a novel. and I th- Adapting a play, adapting a novel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I think Will is a bit of a master when it comes to adapting. Maybe it's because, uh, in the context of this film, like, the novel itself is a gothic horror. It's, it's a horror film. But... I just want to, like, point out that we have our central, like, maniac, Saul, Mm -hmm. is obsessed with fire, and he talks about the secrets of the flame or whatever to Pendril. Mm -hmm. The entire aesthetic of the movie has these really unique shadows, and we have this moment with Margaret um, alone in the living room, noticing how much her shadow is being projected on the wall and making, like, shadow puppets, and then... um, suddenly out of her shadow, Rebecca's shadow comes up and, like, points to her and is doing, like, the creepy thing she was doing in Rebecca's bedroom. Um, But Rebecca isn't actually there. Yeah, did you interpret... I didn't know how to interpret that scene. It was very spooky and evocative and chilling, but, like, because the way that scene is contextualized is Rebecca and Porterhouse have just left the room. Yeah. And then immediately it goes into this other thing. And then once Rebecca's shadow appears and sort of accosts Margaret's shadow, and we're just seeing their shadows on the wall, it immediately cuts away to something else. And then when we cut back, Rebecca's clearly not in that room. And I just wasn't sure, like, if I was supposed to be interpreting Rebecca as being in the room threatening Rachel, or if Rachel was kind of just... If, if that's meant to be Rachel, like, seeing things or, like, getting things, letting things get to her. I think it's letting things get to her, um, and it tells us that she's still, like I, I said earlier, like, haunted by that experience or that exchange with Rebecca. Okay. Um, like, when she freaks out about Rebecca's shadow accosting her, we hear her scream and she runs out of the shadow and we yes. see her actual Margaret, not Margaret's shadow, before we cut. Mm -hmm. So we see that she's alone. But because we have this pyromaniac locked upstairs talking about the secrets of the flame and this particular very memorable scene with the shadow, fire is also present in every single room. Like, there's a fireplace in every single room. Um, It's the main light source after the um, electricity goes out. They they aren't even concerned. Like, the, the films are like, the electricity goes out all the time. I think there's, like, an interesting thing going on with adapting this novel into a visual form and including these things about shadows and flame and fire into its visual style with these these shadows and everything, which I know comes from it being a horror film, but I think with how Whale chooses to focus and um, embrace aspects of these things. I, I think there's something more going on. Yeah, I think film gives a, a very unique opportunity to adaptation, and it's always worth noting that when you adapt something, you have to adapt it to a new medium. You have to establish what is the unique properties of the medium you're adapting it to. So film is a visual medium, right? Whereas a novel is is not. It's a, a, a linguistic medium. So in a novel, you might establish thematics through the use of repeated language. 
But if you do repeated language in a film, it's really terrible. Like, if you're watching the film of The Outsiders and you have to hear someone say, Stay Golden, Bony Boy, for like the 18th time, you start to get really sick of it. But what you can do in film is create thematics visually. And by establishing that, you know, Saul is this pyromaniac, and then building the film's visuals around firelit sequences, you can foreshadow uh, things and establish that visual thematic earlier on Mm -hmm. and throughout the film uh, in a way that, meanwhile, would probably be really grating in a novel, right? If, like, every second sentence it was like, and there was a fire in the corner, in case you didn't know. Like, (laughs) you know, so it's, it's about understanding how to best use your medium to tell the story. Your comment about repeated phrases is interesting in the context of this film because oh boy do they ever like repeat how much it's raining buckets outside or it's like flooding outside just how much water is going on but it's always used to like open up the scene before Mm -hmm. they dive into something completely different it's how we dive into them talking about the psychology it's how we dive into them talking about dinner it, it reminded me a lot of the way that when people <clears throat> don't know what to say and are uncomfortable, they'll talk about the weather. Yeah. And I think that's really what it underlines in this film, is just how uncomfortable all these people are to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so even this repeated language serves a purpose, and mm-hmm. does it well. Do we want to move into ranking? Yeah, I'm ready to, to rank if you are. Cool. What, what, where are you looking? What's your range? So it's definitely the top ten. Yeah. So I always, like, make my list before we do the discussion, right? Yes. Uh, Now after the discussion, I'm thinking it deserves to go a little higher. But where I was originally thinking was um, above Vampire, currently sitting at number nine. Mm -hmm. Above Cat in the Canary, which is kind of where I started looking. Yeah, Um, that seems reasonable. Yeah, at number eight. I was thinking, really, between... Dracula and Vampire. So Dracula from number four to Vampire at number nine. Okay, so you didn't think this was better than Frankenstein. I wasn't sure. Um, and now after talking, I I think it might be. Okay. So I definitely thought it was better than Frankenstein. Um, I just think that it gets off its feet a lot more than Frankenstein does, and it is a lot more engaging and doesn't have some of the creakiness that Frankenstein has, where Frankenstein had some weird structural issues heading into the third act and kind of has a a bit of a weak climax. Um, Where my range is, is also in the top ten, but it's it's a little bit higher up. So I'm looking at above Phantom of the Opera at number seven. That's my floor. Mm -hmm. My ceiling is below Jekyll and Hyde. So I, I would Whoa. go I would go as far as to put this at number two is probably the highest I would put this. The lowest I would put this is below Nosferatu, but above Phantom of the Opera. So your reasoning for why, when you were comparing it to Frankenstein, is this movie is a lot more solid versus Frankenstein's creakiness? Yeah, Frankenstein's got that, like, I'm adapted from a play that's adapted from a book kind of thing that, I mean, it's a movie that's maybe better than the sum of its parts in a lot of ways, where if you sort of take things out of Frankenstein and analyze them bit by bit, they don't work as well. There's parts of Frankenstein that are better than others. 
I remember feeling like the move into the third act in Frankenstein was really hard to get behind. And, and the ending where they're kind of all running around on the set just does, has never really worked for me. Yeah. Frankenstein's really good, but it's, it's, it's not perfect. And I think Old Dark House just feels like it's a lot more... It's got its shit together. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I think even as an adaptation of these two gothic horror novels into horror films, I would say that Old Dark House is a better adaptation. Yeah. It, it just sort of feels like it's all the cylinders are firing, whereas Frankenstein still was a little bit figuring out how to do stuff effectively. So then what about Phantom Carriage? Currently so, sitting at number two. Right. So, I mean, Phantom Carriage has that, like, I'm a serious movie about weighty and serious themes kind of thing going on. Whereas Old Dark House, as dark and as cynical as it is, is maybe a little bit more fun in that it's not talking about, like, uh, systemic poverty and, um, like, tuberculosis and stuff. It sort of leaves its horrors up to your imagination a little bit more. That being said... You know, if we were ranking achievements of cinema, I think I might rank Phantom Carriage above Old Dark House. But as we've said over and over, this is a list of horror films, and we rank them as such. I think Old Dark House just does a better job at being scary. Like, it has better scares. It it has that, you know, Phantom Carriage's horror is almost entirely based around slow build, atmospheric tension. What Old Dark House does is it manages to relieve that tension with actual fast-paced action bits while still remaining scary. Even the comedy, as you mentioned at the very beginning of uh, this second half, the comedy sharpens the horror Mm -hmm. uh, in, in really unique ways. I think even just looking between Old Dark House and Phantom Carriage and how they are communicating the horror... It's interesting, both of their um, ways of communicating the particular horror in their films replicates the feeling of that horror, if you know what I mean. So the feeling of, like, systemic poverty Mm. is a very slow onslaught. Sure. Right? And poverty is a bit of a cyclical onslaught thing. Yeah. Versus, like, um, continually running away from uh, the trauma of your own family, mm-hmm. um, that is reflected in the way this film will do the shifting shots, and, um, like, everyone has a bit of that backstory, uh, and it showed, I, I think it also, like, Old Dark House also gives a lot more, I guess, room in its story to all characters, not just the horrific ones, Yeah. whereas Phantom Carriage, it's like, let me tell you about David Holm. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And how much of a jerk he is. Mm-hmm. All right. I think, I think I'm very happy with putting it at number two. I don't know how to communicate why it's not being put at number one. Oh, um, I do. I feel it's like... not as good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was thinking the way I was communicating horror, um, because I, I just innately feel how Jekyll and Hyde is better. <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde is a better movie. It's better made. It has better shots. It has better variety of scenes. It uses visuals, editing, sound, sets, makeup, framing, composition, everything at its disposal to tell its story. 
Um, it pushes the limits and the boundaries of what the horror genre was talking about at the time it was made. Uh, it also pushes the limits and boundaries of what was possible technologically in film at the time. Jekyll and Hyde uses its story, uses every single storytelling tool it has as a film to tell its story. And I think that it's just a better made movie than Old Dark House. All right. So coming in at number two. Coming in at number two, The Old Dark House, 1932, James Whale. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can see links to all of these other episodes, so you can catch up on what exactly is Phantom Carriage from 1921. (laughs) (laughs) There on our website, you can also find our appeal box where you can submit appeals, asks, concerns, questions, any of that sort. You're also welcome to contact us over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday and is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can help the show out by leaving a review on iTunes or commenting on SoundCloud. That's part of how other people can see the show and uh, also helps us get feedback. Uh, Another way you can help out the show is by just telling people about it. Uh, We're just past October now. Halloween is over. But in case you didn't know it, the Christmas season is also ghost appropriate and super spooky. So Not just because of a Christmas carol? No, Christmas Carol is playing on earlier traditions. Um, <laughs> therefore, you have still got plenty of reason to keep listening to our show and enjoying it as we head into uh, the rest of the holiday season. What are we watching next week, Ben? The Mummy. We're watching The Mummy next week, Sarah. What about the Daddy? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you got to make that joke once, so now you don't get to make that joke in the actual episode at all. No. You have definitely used up your quota of mummy pun jokes. The Mummy is another universal horror film uh, starring Boris Karloff. So they're really starting to crank them out if we're starting to see these, like, right up next to one another. Yeah. Uh, And it's also the directorial debut of Carl Freund, whose cinematography we've enjoyed in a few of our previous films on the list. Great. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.